So good to be here with you guys today. Um, Let's pray, and we will get into Matthew chapter 1. Dear Lord, I thank you so much that you've invited us here today to learn from you and to hear from you. And God, we're so blessed that your spirit is a speaking spirit, Lord, that communicates directly to our hearts through your word, through the body, Lord. And we're so excited today to hear you speak. So I just ask that you would speak, God, and you'd speak clearly and truly, and that we'd walk away from here today with a sincere knowledge of what you've said to us. And I pray we'd bury it in our hearts, Lord, and that it would produce fruit. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So our story begins 2,000 years ago in a small town called Nazareth in the land of Israel. And Israel at this time had been conquered by the vicious and brutal Roman Empire. And it was a time of hopelessness, fear, and despair. And to top it all off, well, Israel was known as God's chosen people and they had this direct connection to his voice and they could hear him speak. Because of their rebellion and rejection of him, it had been 400 years since they had heard God speak to his people. Silence across the land. Suddenly, in a flash of light and through the voice of an angel, a young girl named Mary learns she has been chosen by God to be the mother to a very special child, a boy who'd be named Jesus and who one day would become the king that Israel had always hoped for. And in this moment, Mary is the first of her century to hear the good news of King Jesus and his kingdom. Now, Mary was engaged to a good man named Joseph, and Joseph was devout. He followed Yahweh. He kept his commandments, so him and Mary kept themselves pure before marriage. However, there's a problem. Suddenly, before they get married, Mary becomes pregnant, and Joseph says, Mary, how did this happen? And Mary says, well, it was the Lord, and Joseph is a rational man, and since he's never read, heard, or seen of anyone becoming pregnant without another human involved, he thinks she's lying, and there's been some betrayal, some infidelity. So Joseph is heartbroken, and he's hurt, but he's a good man, so he decides he's going to end the relationship quietly and privately, whatever he can do to save Mary some embarrassment. And he reasons to himself, this is for the best. However, little did Joseph know the kingdom of heaven was about to crash into his life and his world and change it forever. During a long night of just antagonizing over his decision to leave Mary, Joseph falls asleep and an angel of the Lord appears to him saying, and you can read it in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's what we're talking about today. Say it with me. God with us. I love that. I'm so excited about this series. This is one of my favorite subjects, the king and his kingdom. You know, Jesus said the kingdom of God is with us. The kingdom of God is among us. And Jesus proved not only that, but the king himself is with us. It's incredible when you think about how God speaks about himself as king. He could have said, you know, I am the mighty God. I am the conqueror God. I am the wealthy God, the powerful God. However, the world he chooses for himself is Emmanuel, which we read as God with us, but it's actually the proper Hebrew translation is the with us God. It's a title. Think about that. Jesus calls himself the with us God. That's how he sees himself. And it's, it's really, guys, one of the central themes of the whole story of the Bible. The story of God has always been about the king 
his kingdom, and his kids. It's been about family. It's this idea of God with us, the with us God. And we see it all throughout the story. We see in the beginning, think back to, you know, pages one through three of the Bible. What do they tell us? In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, his kingdom. And it's a physical kingdom and yet a spiritual kingdom, a place where man and God can dwell together. He creates this world full of life, plants, animals, and humans. Why? To be with them. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, I love walks. Recently, I went on a missions trip to New Zealand, and I was able to bring some high school students with me, and I consider all of my high school students in my youth group not just students, but dear friends. They're my family, and so um, I invited some of these students to go with me on a barefoot hobbit hike through the hills of New Zealand, because if you're in New Zealand, you've got to go on a hobbit hike. So we kicked off our shoes, we traveled through the hills, rolled through the fields, we ran with the cows, and then we ran away from the cows because they were super scary. Um, And the whole point of the walks, it wasn't really about getting somewhere. It was about the journey. It was about the friendship shared on the walks and the conversations had, the moments shared. And listen, this is why God created us. We as humans are literally designed for intimacy with God. It's our first and foremost function. It's what we were made for. I mean, think about childbirth. How does that happen? Two people who love each other come together and express their love and they create more humans to love. At least that should be how it is. And the story of the Bible is about God starting a family out of his immense desire to love and he lays a kingdom in front of them and says, rule with me, my children. And then the whole thing falls apart. The kingdom is attacked by the enemy, sin, rebellion, and failure. Heaven and earth once united are torn apart and God is ripped from his family. Sin creates a wall of separation between God and his kids. And like any good parent, God is heartbroken. Now earth is no longer a kingdom ruled by the forces of heaven, but one under the forces of hell. And we see that even today. Death, destruction, abuse, violence, racism, hatred, greed, corruption run amok throughout our world. However, God, Yahweh, is not defeated. In those early moments of the story, he makes a plan. He says, I love them. I created them for the purpose of being with them. They are separated from me. They're captured, lost, broken, hurting, afraid. I will restore them. I will rescue them. I will bring them back. I will be with them. I will do this even if it kills me. That's his dedication to the plan. The Old Testament is filled with stories where we see God unfolding his plan to rescue and restore us to the way things were, to rebuild the kingdom of God and to welcome back King Jesus into the story. And throughout these stories, we see Yahweh passionately filling his favorite role, the with us God. He was with Abraham before Abraham even knew he existed. Abraham was a man out in the desert worshiping the sun. And I imagine his eyes got really tired staring at the sun. He was out in the desert and and he doesn't even know Yahweh exists and he shows up and says, Abraham, I am with you. You will have many children and through your family, the entire world will be blessed. Years later, he's with a man named Moses, one of Abraham's great, great grandsons. And Moses was born as a Jew, but became a prince in Egypt. But then he ends up a murderer. And so he's hiding out in the desert on the run. He's a man who turned his back on the family of God and God's plan because he was afraid. And, And God appears in a burning bush and says, Moses, I am with you. And I have chosen you to continue my plan. Years later, he's with David, a shepherd boy who no one thought would amount to anything. But when a giant named Goliath threatened to destroy the family of God and to stop God's plan from saving the world through King Jesus, God said to David, I am with you. And David defeats the giant and becomes king. 
But is he the promised king? Is he the king of kings? No, David falls. He commits adultery and multiple murders. And people wonder, man, we put so much stock in David. We thought he was the king of kings. Will the true king ever come? Will God's kingdom ever be restored? Will God truly be with us? Fast forward to the book of Matthew and we see Jesus answering all these questions with a resounding yes. Emmanuel, God with us. I'd like to show you a video from a group called the Bible Project called the Gospel of the Kingdom that I think really illustrates this point of what the kingdom is and who King Jesus is. So let's just take a moment and we'll watch this video. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird 
thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Pretty cool, huh? I love it. I love that video. Um, those guys have a ton of great videos online for free. They're such a good resource. And I love that video because it perfectly, to me, illustrates one of the core values of the Upside Down Kingdom. Uh, the Upside Down Kingdom is something that we're going to be talking a lot about in this series. Why the Upside Down Kingdom? Well, because it's so opposite from the kingdoms of the world and their values. It's completely flipped. And we're going to be talking a lot about that subject in this series and exploring it from different angles. But today, I'd like to keep it simple and just look at one of the core values of the Upside Down Kingdom, and that is how Jesus Jesus is a much different king than any other king. He is the with us king. Now, many kings and rulers in the past have said to their people, hey, I'm with you. But are they really? I mean, a king can say, I'm with you, but does that mean he's moving out of the palace and he's going to go slumming up in the city with with the villagers in the common village? No. A, A king can say, I'm with you, but does that mean he's on the ground swinging a hammer alongside you, helping you build the pyramid that he ordered that you build? Uh, No. A, A king can say, I'm with you, but does that mean he'll be on the front lines of battle fighting the enemy alongside you? No. Kings throughout history say to their people, I'm with you, but they're not really, not not truly. This is why Jesus is such a different kind of king. While worldly kings sit on a safe seat of power and wealth, often while their people starve and suffer, King Jesus came and left his heavenly throne room and was born into a dirty barn in a dirt poor town in a country full of suffering and hurting people. While worldly kings enlist and often enslave their citizens to do their bidding and build monuments to themselves, King Jesus made himself a servant of all and built the foundation of the kingdom of heaven on his back when he carried the cross up Calvary Hill. While worldly kings send men off to the front lines to die in wars that they started, King Jesus sent himself to the front lines of humanity to bleed and die for his far off enemies in a war that we started so that his enemies could be brought near to the God who longed to be with them and call them friends. King Jesus is a much different kind of king. He is the king who is with us, the with us God and the with us king. Now, maybe you're here today and there is brokenness in your life. Maybe there's pain or hurt or fear, sickness, doubt, discouragement. 
You know, the holidays are coming up, and normally that's, that's a time where it's supposed to be joyful, but I know for a lot of people, it's a time of immense pain because of family issues or health issues or financial issues or even memories from the past. The holidays can be a hard time where there's this expectation that Christianity, or not Christianity, but Christmas is supposed to have this perfection, like this little Norman Rockwell painting perfect look, but maybe your Christmas doesn't look that way, and so for you, there's a world of pain coming up. Can I remind you if that's you? God is with you. Maybe you've lost someone, and, and especially now, those feelings of that hurt and regret and the pain of loss is just bringing so much sorrow into your life. Can I remind you, God is with you. Maybe you're here and you feel unloved and rejected by circumstances and people in your life. Can I remind you, God is with you. Jesus entered into a long line of human suffering when he came here and he knew exactly what he was getting into and he's committed to see us through it. He's committed to sacrificial love. He's with you. That's the whole point of everything Jesus suffered through. In Isaiah 60 through nine, it says, in all their suffering, he suffered and he personally rescued them. Jesus has suffered through everything we as humanity has suffered through. That's why he came to enter into our suffering. The verse goes on, in his love and mercy, he redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them through all the years. I love that verse. God came near to a far off people, not to love them from a distance, but to love them up close. And when people catch on to this, that's when amazing things start to happen. They start to catch the heart of the kingdom and they begin to follow in the footsteps of the king. One such person was Jim Elliott and his friends, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint. And these Christian men were so captivated by the heart and mission of King Jesus that they decided to do something that no one in their friends group would do. You see, God put on their hearts a small tribe in the jungles of Ecuador, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but it was the Huarni tribe. And these were dangerous people known by the other tribes in the area as the savages. Around the time of World War II, it was estimated that up to 60% of all Huarni deaths were due to murder by people in their own tribe. And when Jim's friends and family learned that he was planning on going on this missions trip, they begged him. They said, Jim, listen, like you don't want to go to that jungle. Stay here. You and your buddies can run the youth ministry at the church. That's much safer. And as a former junior high pastor, I can say, I don't know how much, I mean, they're kind of savages too. Um, But Elliot and his friends, they knew that they were called. And so in 1956, they left for that jungle. And they spent months flying over the village in their small plane. You see, they thought, we will reach them, but let's be safe. We'll, We'll start out from a distance and see how it goes. So they got in their plane and they would fly over the village. And for months, they would drop gift baskets to the people. And they would try to speak to them through a portable loudspeaker. And I kind of see a parallel there between God and the Old Testament. Uh, You know, it's, there's this distance between God and man and God is speaking from a distance, from the skies. He's speaking messages. He's through burning bushes and through clouds and pillars of fire. And he's dropping gifts and blessings from above. But eventually God decided that was not enough. He cannot just keep this distance and speak from the skies. He has to come up close. And that's what I see Jim and Elliot doing, falling in the footsteps of the with us God. They realized it was not enough to speak from the skies, to reach the people they had to be with the people. So in the method of King Jesus, they decided they would land and meet the villagers. They would come to them and be with them. In 1949, a few years before, Jim wrote a line in his journal. He read, or it said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
And I love that line, and it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy because on January 8th, 1956, as Jim and his missionary friends drew near to a people who were far from God, they were met not with open arms and acceptance, but with violence and death. Ten warriors from the village showed up and killed the missionaries by plunging spears through them. And they did not fight back. They, they, they stood there and they took it and, and they died for the people that they came to minister to. And I think what a picture of Jesus. He was not content to speak from the skies, but he came to a hurting and dying world, Emmanuel, God with us. And what did, what did they do? What did we do? What did humanity do? We killed him. He was willing to lay down his life for people he knew would kill him. And that's the gospel beauty about Jim Elliott's story because something amazing happens next. You see, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, uh, her and the other wives of the men who died, they were heartbroken when they heard about it. And I imagine they were angry and sad and confused and wondering, God, what are you, what are you doing? And many in their circumstances, I mean, they would, re- they would have remained bitter their entire lives. They would have gone to their grave with bitterness and anger towards the men who killed their husbands and possibly even at God. However, not these women. They believed so much in the mission and the kingdom of God. They decided they too would go to that jungle and they would follow in the footsteps of their husbands and in King Jesus. And here's what's amazing. When they showed up in faith, knowing they very much could have received the same death their husbands did, that's not what happened. See, God worked a miracle. The villagers, instead of killing them, actually received them into the village. And these women were able to tell the very people who killed their husbands about Jesus and lead them to Christ. And through their ministry, churches and schools and hospitals have been built in that jungle. And to this day, the gospel continues to thrive in that village. Isn't the kingdom amazing? Isn't the king amazing? In a corrupted, violent, hateful, death-filled world, God is right here with us building something amazing. And through all the pain and suffering Jim and Elizabeth and their friends endured, Jesus was right there with them saying, I too suffered in this way. You are following in my footsteps and I will bless you for it. He, he's a different kind of king. You see, he doesn't command us to build his kingdom and fight his battles and then immediately retreat to to the safety of his palace saying, all right, I did my job. Now it's up to you. No, he commits himself to be with us, to suffer with us, to laugh with us, to live with us, to win with us, to lose with us, to die with us, and to resurrect with us. You see, he is the with us God. It's the entire story of the Bible. Genesis, God walked with Adam and Eve. Isaiah, a child will be born and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus said to his disciples, lo and behold, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And and as Christians, we have a great hope in the future where God will bring his kingdom in a perfect form, a new heaven, a new earth, no sin, death, war, crime, hatred, greed. And Revelation tells about this amazing future. In Revelation 21.3, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and he will be his people and and God himself will be with them and be their God. Past, present, future, the story is God is with us. 
Now, for a moment, I want to get really practical with you because, you know, we often miss this even as followers of Jesus. We forget that God is with us. In fact, often we can fall into four different categories in the way that we live our life in relationship to God. Maybe you'll find yourself in one of these categories. The first is we can tend to live under God, which is basically a bartering system. It's sort of a formula. If I do X, then God has to do Y. If I tie 10%, then God's going to hook me up, of course. Uh, you know, if I volunteer my time, then God's going to take care of me. Guys, that's religion in a nutshell. The problem is when we live under God, we tend to kind of freak out when tragedy hits our life. We get angry and bitter at God because that, that wasn't in the agreement. We had expectations that our lives would be perfect as long as we upheld our end of the bargain. The reality is God actually promised us not that our lives would be perfect as Christians, but that they'd be hard and difficult. But the reward of the final perfect kingdom and our current relationship with God that gets us through every tough time is greater, it's a greater reward than any comfort earth can give us. Just ask Jim Elliott. The second way that we live often is over God. And someone who lives over God is basically they put themselves in a place over God where they live their life however they want with no regard for God. And when you live this way, the center of your life is you. It's your career, your wealth, your body image, your popularity, your success. And Christians can do this. I mean, you can be a Christian and still be very secular in your way of living. You can show up to church and say, I did my time, but then the rest of the week, this is my time, this is my life, don't try to get involved, Lord. I'm going to live my life the way that I want. Like, don't try to convict me. Don't try to guide me. I go to church on Sunday and I do my thing. I mean, I'm sure many of you know people who live this way and possibly maybe even today the Lord is telling you this is you. The third category is often we can live for God, which sounds good, but I'm, I'm talking about a very specific way of living for God. This is often in, in my flesh where I fall. This is the stressed out ministry person, like being a total Martha and not a Mary. If, if you're new to church stuff and you're like, what does that mean? Google search Martha, Mary, Jesus, and then you can read the story. Like, what is it? Be a Martha, be a Mary? I don't know. Um, it's somebody who you feel overworked by serving ministry, family, and friends while also seeking Secretly, you feel like you're never doing enough and you feel guilty any moments that you're resting. It's like, I've always got to be doing, I've always got to be doing something. It's like you feel like you owe it to God and his acceptance of you has to do with your performance. And for people like me who struggle in this area, often the mission of God eclipses the God of the mission in our lives. Remember, he's not the king who forces his subjects into labor. He's the king who says, I want to labor alongside you. I want to be with you. I want to do this together, which is so much better. It's the difference between being a slave and being a friend. The fourth way that people live is often from God. And this is sort of my millennial generation in a nutshell. Um, Living from God means you're more interested in what you can get from God than in a relationship with God himself. In fact, recent studies of teenagers um, and, and young college adult students who've grown up in the church in kind of a consumeristic Christian culture, they've asked them, what's your view of God? Like, how would you sum up? Like, what is God to you? And most people replied, with some combination of God is a divine butler and therapist. 
Um, author Sky Jathani puts it this way, and I think it's super profound. In his book, With, he says, so much of contemporary religion is focused on God's gifts rather than on God. We use God as a means of building or repairing our families. We use him as a sex therapist. He's our political advisor and our financial planner. From God's hand, we seek family, sex, power, and wealth. But do we actually want God himself? We shouldn't be surprised to find that when we fixate on what we can attain from God, we fail to experience the peace of his presence in our lives. So good. I mean, it hits hard. It's convicting for me. I don't know if it is for you, but that quote gets me right here. Because I often want God to solve my problems and bless me, but I often don't want to be with him. And it kind of reminds me of Christmas. I mean, let's be honest. I'm sure many of you guys have amazing kids here, but I mean, for the majority of our kids, is their primary goal and objective in Christmas season, like, I just cannot wait to hear the Christmas story one more time about baby Jesus and the angels and the shepherd, like, give it to me, that's what Christmas is all about, come on, come on, I don't care about presents, no, like, they're, they want to they know what's underneath the tree, that's what they're excited about, it's, it's presents, I mean, I'll admit, when I was a kid, my dad would read the Christmas story every year, and I'd be sitting there smiling and nodding, going, yeah, this is great, this is great, but in my head, I was like, get on with it, what's underneath the tree, I want to get in there, I mean, you know, as an adult, my views on Christmas has changed because when I was a kid, it was like presents, presents, more presents. Now as an adult and I'm married, more presents means more money than I'm spending. Um, in fact, if my wife buys me 10 gifts, guess who also bought me 10 gifts? Me. Um, and you know, so, so many presents are lame. You know, they just end up in your garage or your shed. I've seen kids like that you would get them a toy for Christmas and literally like a week later, they're like, I don't know where that is. I lost it. I don't even like it. And the new version came out. I mean, you know, nowadays I remember I got my dad a book two years ago and he hasn't even touched it. It's sitting on his bookshelf. It's never been opened. I, I pulled it off. It still had the new book smell. Nowadays, my favorite part about Christmas is honestly, deep in my heart, it's, it's the whole concept of with. It's being with the people that I love and being with God. It's being with my wife on Christmas morning and watching her face when she opens the gifts that I got her. It's, it's eating a cinnamon roll with her that she baked. It's, it's going to my parents' house and listening to dad once again read the story even though all his kids are grown and married. It's, I think it's super sweet. It's sitting at the table enjoying an Italian meal cooked by my mom and aunt and grandma. It's playing a board game with my sisters and their husbands and it's hugging my mom and listening to a story from grandpa and talking about how awesome the new Star Wars was with my uncles and cousins so excited. Star Wars, they're going to make a new Star Wars movie every year until you die. That's the plan. That's what they said. Every year until you die. Every Christmas. So, so good. Um, It's being with. That's the biggest gift. And in the same way, listen, God doesn't desire for you to live under him, over him, from him, or even for him. God wants you to live with him. That's why you were made for. That's what you were designed for, relationship and intimacy. Listen, I beg you, this Christmas, find some space and time just to be with Jesus this month. Recenter yourself. And, and no, honestly, the reality is you taking time to read your devotions and pray and have moments with Jesus isn't going to make the stress of the holidays go away. It's not going to make having a 
buy presents. Like you're still going to have to buy presents. If you want to live in this American culture, you're, you're going to have to still do that. You're still going to have to go shopping and bake goodies and be with family. And for some of you, that's stressful. It doesn't mean if you spend time with God, all that's going to go away. But what it does mean is your eyes will be open to the reality that through all that, he is with you. He's right alongside you and he's overjoyed to be with you and fill you with his strength and his courage and his peace. Have you guys ever heard of Brother Lawrence? Anybody? Wow, dead silence. First service. Oh, we, okay, I see that hand. So somebody, somebody knows about him. Okay, I'll tell you. He, he's a famous figure of the faith. Um, books that he has, like from compilings of his teachings, have been spread all throughout the world. But during his time, he was kind of a nobody. He's a poor man who lived in the mid-1600s in France. And his poverty forced him to enlist as a soldier and fight in the 30-year war. You see, back then, the military was basically his only guarantee for food and shelter and a small payment. And it was during the war that he came to know Christ. And after he suffered an injury in the war, he tried to join a monastery and devote his life to serving Jesus. But because of his lack of education, he was unable to become a monk. So he spent all the rest of his life within the walls of the monastery, working in the kitchen and as a sandal repairman, a dishwasher and a shoe repairer. Despite his low position in life in the ministry, it was his character that attracted people to him. And he had a reputation for experiencing profound peace in stressful times. And and visitors came to speak spiritual guidance from him. And the wisdom he passed on to them in conversations and in letters would later become the basis for a book, The Practice of the Presence of God. For any of you struggling with finding time to connect with Jesus in this busy time of life, listen to Lawrence's words. Just soak them up. Listen, he says... The time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. It's so good. Listen, remember what Paul said. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Join a monastery, shave your head, don't eat, drink, or sleep, and just pray 24-7 and then die a week later because that's what will happen if you don't eat, drink, and sleep. No, listen, when he says pray without ceasing, when he's talking about practicing the presence of Jesus, it just means basically learning how to be two places at once. Here's what I mean by that. You're in the car, you're driving to work, but remember, you're with Jesus, You're in the house with screaming toddlers and you're with Jesus. You're in a stressful classroom and, oh, that test is crazy hard, but you're also with Jesus. You're in that moment where the deadlines are approaching and the stress is rising, but you're also with Jesus. Listen, this isn't an expectation God puts on you to perform. Spend time with me or you're through. Make sure every five minutes, no matter what you're doing, you get on your knees and you, no, listen, he's, it's, an, it's not an expectation, it's an invitation. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not get over here and read three chapters of Leviticus like a real Christian. Jesus invites you throughout your day, your week, or your month, or your year to find moments to be with him. And sometimes we get this so wrong because sometimes we have our plan. Is anyone here a planner and and you plan things a certain way and if things don't go according to plan, like your whole world falls apart? Anyone? I'm, I'm like that. Yeah, okay. We can be honest. So... Oftentimes we have our plan and we have our systems and, and, and we say, I meet with Jesus at this time and I read this many chapters and I pray for this long, but what happens if we miss it because of life or stress or kids or busyness or obligations, duties, or even just laziness? You know, often I found in my life when I do that, I get guilty and I give up. 
And sometimes Jesus shows up and says, hey, Aaron, I, I know you had a plan, but you know, I, what about, you've got five minutes free. Like, what about just these five minutes? Like, just, I'm here. Like, let's, let's hang out. Like, experience me. I want to experience you. Like, let's talk. Let's pray. Turn off your phone, your TV, your computer, the sports game. Fold up your newspaper for those of you who are old school and analog. Um, he's saying, be with me. But I resist. I say, no, Lord, that wasn't in the plan. It's either an hour of Leviticus or nothing. And you think I'm kidding. I just finished Leviticus for my devotions. Oh, my goodness. It was gnarly. Oh. Listen, is that how any healthy relationship works? If you find out that me and my wife, Brooklyn, have a system where it's like, we, Brooklyn, we meet at 3 o'clock every day. I talk for 15 minutes. You talk for 15 minutes. We hum a hymn, and that's it. And we go our separate ways. And if we miss it, we don't talk. You'd be like, that's not a healthy relationship. No healthy relationship works that way. Listen, sometimes my wife and I, we go on long, fun dates where we talk and talk and talk and eat, and it's awesome. But sometimes life comes up. And I know if I had a date plan with my wife and I had to cancel because something came up and we were busy all day running around errands and trying to do things, listen, I would still long for even just 10 minutes before bed that I could reconnect with her, to talk with her and to hug her and to hear her heart and just to be with her. You guys who are married or are or, or children or are parents or have friends, you know what what I'm talking about. If you can't have the hour, don't you still want a little bit? Like, isn't it still good? That's what God's looking for, not a routine. He's looking for a relationship. He's calling you to be with him, to be with the with us God. When we realize God is with us and we commit ourselves to his kingdom purposes, we realize the point of it all. The kingdom isn't about getting, it's about giving. And we carry in our hearts the greatest gift of all, a life freed from sin, a heart filled with joy, and the living spirit of God. Because of the Holy Spirit, we carry God's presence with us. And as we close today, I have a question for us. Do we have the spirit of Emmanuel, the spirit of God with us? And if we do, are we faithfully carrying that spirit to people in our world? Now listen, I'm a deconstructionist, and what that means basically is just sometimes to understand concepts, I like to like take them apart and look at the pieces and figure out how they work. So in that mind frame, like let's, 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 let's ask the question, when we say God is with us, what do we mean? God is with us. What do we mean? When we say God is with us, who is the us? My thought process, honestly, if I think about it, my, the place my brain immediately goes to when I, when I say God is with us is the church, the Christians. I mean, the, the followers of God, the faithful, the, the good people. And, and along this way of thinking, you know, I think, you know, if, if people want to be with God, then where do they need to go? Well, they need to come to us. They need to go to church. That's a common Christian way of thinking. We need to get the lost people to come to church because that's where God is. However, the story of Emmanuel implies something vastly different. So we have a prophecy, right, in Isaiah. A virgin, a baby will be born and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Questions. Did Christians exist at the time of this prophecy? No. Did they exist at the time that this prophecy was fulfilled and Jesus came as a baby? Were, were any Christians around? No. Was Jesus born in a church? No. He was born in a barn. And in the moments after the birth, who was he with? Christians? No, they didn't exist. Who was he with? Humans. Humans. Different kinds of humans, devout humans, Mary and Joseph, followers of Yahweh, devout, honoring the Lord, good people. Also, 
wise men, three kings, secular humanists who worshipped other gods, and the lowest members of society, the outcasts, the shepherds, these ragtag, we don't even know if they followed Yahweh or not. They're just out there. They were literally despised and looked down upon in their society. Listen, in a time before churches were established and Christianity was even a movement, God came to the earth as a child and declared to the world, God is with us. Listen, it's a message for all of humanity. God with us in this room and outside these doors. To the saint and sinner alike, God has come near and his presence fills the entire earth. The, the us is not the church. It's the whole of humanity. God is with us. Yes, of, we as Christians, we experience that us-ness in a much closer way because we have the spirit and we have forgiveness and we have that hope. However, God is with the drunk on the street corner or the used and abused prostitute as much as he is with the devout churchgoer who never misses a Sunday. Maybe that's unsettling to you. Maybe your religious side kicks in. I know mine does. And I think, you know, oh, God is with them? I mean, I know he's with me, but with them? I mean, I I come here, and I said a prayer, and I tithe, so I kind of earned it. Like, God is on my side. Like, that's the thing. I I do this, and he does that. But what does scripture tell us? It says, different verses. We, We have the prophecy in Isaiah. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, if you've ever wondered what God must think about this world, you ever turn on the news and just watch the debauchery and you're just like, what would God say? Like, if he were here, what would he say, I wonder? Listen, he already said it. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's talking about Jesus and the word used is, the word word is logos, which means Jesus was God's statement. He was basically, Jesus was what God had to say. What does God have to say about this? Jesus To humanity, throughout all of human history, what God has been saying is, I love you and I'm with you. You might think, all right, all right, but you're telling me Jesus is with the sinner. He's with the prostitute, the drug dealer, the thief, the drunk. Isn't it wrong to tell someone who's sinning, God is with you? Isn't that like saying God supports their sin? Listen, friends, I mean, I have an easy answer to that. I thought about it. But first, more questions, because I like questions. Um, For you, question, do you... I'm assuming most of you are Christians. Do you believe God is with you? Do you also sin? Does that mean God supports your sin? But is he still with you? Well, there we go. All throughout the gospel, Jesus proves himself to be the with us God. He was called the friend of sinners. He was known for sharing meals with tax collectors and prostitutes. If you work for the IRS... It was a different time back then. They really didn't like people who work with taxes. I mean, come afterwards and I'll hug you and it'll be okay. Um, He was known for sharing meals with tax collectors and prostitutes. If he lived in 2016, there'd be many churches who wouldn't invite him to speak. Should we invite that Jesus guy to come speak at our church? I don't know. Have you looked at his Instagram? Have you seen the people he sits with? Like, he's kind of sketchy. That's what would happen, but Jesus didn't care. He was dedicated to be with. He was the God who was with humanity, followers, enemies, friends, betrayers, skeptics, doubters. He was with them all, regardless of their decision about him. He made a decision long ago that he would be with them. 
Listen, God is like a brilliant doctor who left his amazing office and came down to the streets to be with sick people. He doesn't say to humanity, if you want to be healed, come see me at my office. No, he's sitting next to the drunk, the addict, the abused, pleading with them to take the medicine, holding their hand and saying, listen, I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with you. But if you want to be healed, you've got to take this medicine. And that's true of any medication. You have to make the choice to be saved just like you have to take the medicine to be healed. He's not going to force anyone, but that does not mean he's not there or that he won't show up until you come to him. Listen, if you're here today and you haven't accepted him, you need to know that regardless of how good you've been or the mistakes you've made, he is with you, right beside you. Listen, through Jesus, God has come near to humanity. Have you ever been trying to get someone to come to church, but they just won't come? Anybody? Yeah? So a big possibility is they're kind of spooked by the idea of church. They, maybe they have misconceptions. Maybe they think, you know, church is just a bunch of hypocrites, or I'm not good enough to step foot in a church. And we can get upset, and we can be like, they just need to get their act together and come to church, and then God will show them. But if they don't come, I mean, it's on them. I, I did what I could. I invited them. But what does Jesus do? Did Jesus try to get people to come to him? No, he went to them. Is there someone this holiday season that you want to impact for Jesus? God has just put on your heart, this person. Maybe you're visualizing them right now. Listen, if they won't come to church, then you bring church to them. Whose door can you show up to with a meal, a song, a gift, a prayer? Because waiting for them to come to church is a misunderstanding of what church even is. It's not a building. It's a body. It's mobile, and it has no walls. You can't contain the kingdom of God in a building. The kingdom of God is among us. When we leave this place, we take the kingdom with us. Who can you bring church to this year? Many times people view God in a sense of distance. You know, we say things like, I feel so close to God, or oh man, I feel so bad for her. She's so far away from God right now. I don't think that's helpful. I think the message of the Bible is to all of humanity, God says, I am with you. I think we need to think of it less in the sense of distance and more in the sense of spiritual blindness and sight. So many people are blind to the reality that God is with them and he's standing right in front of them. We say, like Paul, I once was blind, but now I... So when you get saved, does that mean that Jesus comes from heaven to you and makes this long journey? No, he already made that journey 2,000 years ago. For your entire life, he's been standing right next to you. As he says in Revelation, hey, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice, I will enter in and we will share a meal together as friends. Listen, there are people out on these doors and in this audience even who feel far from God. Maybe you're here today and you feel far from God. You feel like if you are ever to be saved, you need to climb a spiritual mountain of good works and earn your way back into God's good graces. You have to work your way through the long distance to finally get back to him where he's standing there with his arms crossed saying, what took you so long? Listen, the story of Emmanuel tells us that no matter how far you feel from God, the reality is he's with you. He's with us. He's the with us God. He's with humanity. He's with sinners. And he's standing here knocking on the door, waiting for you to open your eyes and realize that he's right in front of you. That's why those of us who follow Jesus and have his spirit, we are called the light of the world. We're called to go to people in darkness and illuminate the God who is standing right next to them. That's our role. Listen, whenever you think of people as the lost, make sure you also think of them as the loved because lost people are loved people. And we are called to do all that we can to reveal to them, listen, God is with us. Think about that. 
Isn't that so much better? I want you to be able to confidently leave this message today and talk to anyone on any street corner and go to them and say, hey, listen, you, fellow member of humanity, you probably wouldn't say that because you'd sound like a space alien, um, but, you know, to just, just track with me to be able to say, hey, you, like fellow member of humanity, God is with us. Isn't that so much better than going to someone and saying, hey, listen, God is with me because I'm a church person. Come be a church person and then you can be with God. No, it's revealing to them, listen, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We've all messed up. We've all made mistakes and God is with us. Isn't that so much better? To close, I'd like to read you the story of a girl named Rachel Starr. These are in her words. She says, as a girl raised in a Christian home, I never had been inside a strip club in my life. But I felt this calling from God to reach out to women in the sex industry. And I didn't really know how I was going to do this, but I knew that God had given me a passion for these women to know how much he loves them and how precious they are in his eyes. Still, I was definitely nervous to share this idea with my church because, I mean, going to a strip club isn't exactly typical for a church-raised girl. But whatever my doubts, I knew God was calling me to take action. He wanted more out of me than just having feelings of compassion for women in the sex industry. He wanted me to do something about it. So in 2008, I started Scarlet Hope, a ministry that reaches out to women involved in the sex industry. We take, and and the we is the, the women's ministry of the church, just for clarification. The men in the church were not involved in this. So we, the women's ministry, take big Southern comfort style dinners to strip clubs. Our prayer is that we're not just feeding their stomachs, but we're feeding a deep spiritual hunger in their souls. In some clubs, we fix hair and makeup so we can get some one-on-one time with the girls. It gives us an opportunity to pray with women in the middle of a strip club. How often does that happen? Through this ministry, I've seen hearts changed and lives touched as many of these ladies have turned to Christ for forgiveness and a new beginning. Honestly, my heart and relationship with Jesus have also been drastically changed. I've seen Jesus show up many times in the back of a strip club dressing room. Many dancers have opened up to us, sharing their struggles, asking for prayer, And some have even accepted our invitations to church, left the sex industry, and become committed followers of Christ. It's funny, but the strippers there have taken to calling us the church ladies. I never thought I'd end up with such a traditional title doing radical work for the kingdom, but I think that's the kind of church lady God was calling me to become. My name is Rachel Starr, and I'm not a fan of Jesus. I'm a follower. What a a beautiful picture of kingdom people following their king into places that no one else would dare go, places that almost seem just wrong for a Christian to go, improper, but doing it in the way that King Jesus did. I'm I'm sure when he came, the angels were like, what are you doing coming to earth? That's not where you belong. You belong in the holy place. And Jesus said, I want to make their place a holy place. I want to come to them and deliver my heart and love. May that be our heart. May we too follow in the footsteps of King Jesus and take the gospel of the kingdom, and the message of Emmanuel, God with us, to every corner of this town and our world. Are you with me? Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you so much, God, that you have invited us to be a part of your mission and a part of your heart. God, we thank you for the story of Emmanuel, the story that you are not content to distantly wait for us to get our act together, but that you decided to come to us and risk your life and lose your life for us to prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt your heart for us is that you are with us and you love us and you care for us no matter how much of a sinner we are You are so in love with us and you are standing right in front of us and you are knocking on the door of our hearts. God, I pray if there's anyone here in this audience and they need that message and and they don't know you, but now they realize it's not this distant thing where they have to work their way back to you. You're literally right next to them. You're sitting next to them 
in this church and you're calling them to receive you and to enter into a relationship with you, I pray as we worship God, you would lead them to do that. Lead them, Lord, to to just ask you to be a part of their life. Lead them to say, I want to join you, Jesus, in your kingdom and be a part of what you're doing. God, we need you. We love you. And I just ask that you would help all of us to carry the spirit of Emmanuel to every corner of the world. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen.